Thank you for accessing KPC Sermons. This message is from November 3rd, 2019. Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties during the service, the opening portions of the message are not available. We apologize for any inconvenience. We now join this morning's message already in progress. That matters so much. Well, first of all, it matters because it comes first. Before all the problems in the world, before all the wrong in our lives, before any of the messes that we see unfold later in the Bible, before all of that, we were made by God in his likeness. I think there are some people in our world who mostly associate the church with judgment, with sin, with a negative message. But when we actually read scripture, we find that in the beginning, it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And so we have this beautiful story of creation that comes before the fall, that comes before the story of chapter 3. Now, when you make something good, you love it. Some of you may have had that experience this week. I did. I made this incredible green tomato chili salsa this week from scratch. Mm. And it's spicy. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, you should come over. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because my family don't appreciate it at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, Callum, Callum consented to try it, but uh, he hasn't been back. Actually, I actually made like a, it's really weird you said, I, I made yesterday, a, this is unscripted by the way, um, a scotch bonnet pepper sauce yesterday morning, so okay. we're vibing. We could meet at fixed gear and maybe bring our own, <laughs> our own sauces. So I love this salsa I made, and at this point, one of my children when they were younger would have said, do you want to marry it? Um, but when Genesis 1 says over and over again, it was good. And then finally, at the end of Genesis 1, that it was very good. This is a refrain that captures God's love for us. And we are made in his image. And so that is more than just a concept, more than a theological idea. But it is God's shaping us the way that you feel love for anything you've created. The way that you feel love for your children, if you have kids, um, and that's still true, even after the fall, even after things go sideways. And Bible scholars sometimes use this analogy to explain what that means, to be created in God's image. It's, it's like how in the ancient world, kings would create, would, would build monuments to themselves. They, they would uh, erect statues throughout their kingdom to represent their authority and to remind people that they were in charge, that, that they were king. And what God has done by making us in his image is so much more than that. He's given us life, but we are his representatives as we are made in his image. And so we are loved by him. We have this core need for love. And from the beginning of the Bible, it tells us that we are loved by him, but also that we are sent out by him to represent him, to be stewards, to be, re- to be regents is another word for it. Now, we've touched on science in this series And we've seen how science and Christian faith are not at odds. They don't need to be mutually exclusive, although there's a bit of that in the history of the church in the past 150 years, but rather that they should be in harmony because all truth is God's truth. 
But let's be clear that science cannot explain our uniqueness as human beings. It cannot answer the why question, right? We've talked about that. Genesis 1 and 2 especially focus on why we're here. And science is unable to address that. So here in the Bible, starting in Genesis, I love the way Allison put this last week, quoting Daryl Johnson, uh, who's a theologian at Regent College in Vancouver. We have a story that makes sense of all our stories. This story helps us to understand why things go wrong. It helps us to understand why we feel certain longings, why we are at odds with each other, why there is so much beauty in the world and so much sorrow. And so I think most of all, the deepest longing we have is for love that will satisfy us and fulfill us. It's for relationship that is whole and not broken. It's for meaning and significance in our lives. And all of that comes from being made in God's image. I think we have a deep sense in our gut. We don't need to read works of philosophy. Uh, We don't need to go to theological college. We know that there's something within us that will only be satisfied by God. And people put other names to that if they're not believers. But I think every human being has that sense. And we have a word for it, right? It's our soul. It's the deepest part of who we are. We got a puppy four weeks ago. The McLeods got a dog. And I'm sorry I don't have a picture because I realized that the path to church growth is pictures of puppies on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Because the last time I had a picture of, of Pepper, there was a collective... Ah, yeah. So we love our little puppy, and she's amazing, but it's, it's clear that she's nothing like us as human beings. She's not on Facebook comparing her family to other dog circumstances, for one thing. She's neither as powerful nor as messed up as we are. And also, we rule over her, and we do that with love. But that also speaks to the mandate we have as created in God's image. So God, the true king, God, the Lord Almighty, sends us out to exercise our influence in the world, to be creative. Now, this word creation, it transfers into an adjective quickly and describes, I hope, all of our pursuit of God and our practice of the Christian life. We do that creatively. Uh, We use our gifts, we use our resources, our power. Let's be honest about the power we have individually to be fruitful, to provide for others, to care for them, to love them, to bless them, to fulfill our purpose, which is not to turn in on ourselves, but which is rather to go out and to multiply God's goodness, to reflect it and to multiply it. And I think the church, and I include our congregation in that, The church at large in the world, but also courtright, needs to figure out how to tell the Christian story with these two pieces as completely central to our message. Namely, it was very good, and in his image he created them. Let's start where the Bible starts, with the goodness, the creativity, the vocational purpose that we have as believers. So what would that look like? for you, where you live, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in retirement, the the time you have, the choices you have to make, on campus, 
What does that look like? That blessed creativity you can bring. This week, our puppy figured out part of her purpose. Pepper is part terrier. And this week, she started chasing squirrels. You should see her go. God made her fast and hopefully deadly. Because we could use a few fewer, a few fewer squirrels around. Um, how did God make you? I think this is a question that we should always be asking each other. If you come to lunch today, if you're a newcomer or if you just want to reconnect with community at Courtright, uh, you're invited for lunch if you missed that announcement. When we do introductions, when we go around the table, I'm going to ask you what you love to do. Because some of the best conversations I've ever had with you, some of you, and with people generally start from that place. What, it is, what, is, it, what is it you love? When you go home today, what's on your mind? What are you excited about? So we want to be a church that more and more nurtures that kind of love, that purpose, that mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And we're, we're considering that. If you were here last Sunday, you heard Je- Justin's uh, presentation on the outreach survey that he and Kira did this past summer. How are you getting people together? This always happens with others when it happens most effectively to put that into practice, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city of Guelph. Because it starts right here in Genesis. From the outset, we get this, uh, these marching orders, this vision of how the world should be. One of the best things that, that I thought Justin said in his presentation last Sunday was that not only do we support financially the mission of this congregation, many of us, but we also give to over a hundred other charitable causes, some Christian organizations, some not particularly Christian. And so just look around you for a second. Um, they never do that when you ask them to. <laughs> no, we mean it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe later if there's time, we can exchange the piece. But um, at the rate I'm going, there won't be, right? No. No? <laughs> um, the blessings that flow out of us and our calling by God here in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply are more than you can imagine. And all of that comes from this point in scripture. And I don't have time to talk about how this idea of being creative in God's image relates to human rights, relates to our concept of justice, relates to a lot of how we understand looking after the least of these, the powerless in our society. I really don't have time for that. So over to you. <laughs> so we end with this idea of, of God created everything. And at the very end, he says, not only was it good, but it was very good. And then something curious gets stated, and these words are in Genesis 2, uh, verses 2 and 3, and we can read these together, I think, because we have them. Perfect. Let's read them together. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Sabbath. We talked about Sabbath, and this is this idea that, that God, of, 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 all, uh, of all things, God stopped. God had completed his work. In this, the God who has no need to stop, the God who has infinite wisdom and power, the God who stands outside the human understanding and confines and constraints of time, the God of whom Jesus says, Jesus said of, of God the Father, my Father is always working. 
He models for us the gift of Shabbat or Sabbath. Now, the, the Pentateuch in Genesis and then later in Exodus kind of has two primary ways in which we get to receive Sabbath or in which we get to understand Sabbath. The first is what I would call a freedom to, a freedom to, that we have a freedom to experience the goodness of God and his creation, to trust in God's presence and God's sovereignty, to enjoy, to rest, to delight in God to delight in family, in friends, in nature, in whatever, in whatever fills you with delight and joy to do that on those days, to set apart time to do that. And then the second uh, expression of Sabbath comes later on in the Exodus uh, from Egypt, where there was toil and there was slavery, where they didn't get a day off. They had nothing like that. And God gives, gives them Sabbath ultimately as a gift freedom from so we had freedom to freedom from toil freedom from slavery sabbath is ultimately an expression of god's grace and god's provision and god's sufficiency and jesus himself modeled this well and he showed us that sabbath sometimes people can treat this very legalistically and jesus totally blows it out of the water when he says these words in mark 2 he says the sabbath was created for humans, for us. Humans weren't created for the Sabbath. It wasn't like God was like, no, 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 I'm going to force you to do this. God says, I, I am giving you this as a powerful gift. It's a call to delight in God and others. It's a call to stop from our weekly rhythms. And I believe when we fail to Sabbath well, we become less human, less than God's design and God's intention, that we cease to be that image bearer that Alex was just talking about because we're too tired, we're too exhausted, we're too, uh, we're too burnt out to lead well and to serve well and to rule well. Sabbath is a foretaste of what is to come in the new creation. So my encouragement as I look at this passage is for us to uh, stop living disordered lives, that our lives are created with an order, with this rhythm to stop and rest and delight, that there is wonder and beauty all around us. But to experience it in its fullness, God says we must stop. And then from here. We get into a second creation narrative. If you read through Genesis 2, it's sort of a a second reading of the creation story. And it zeroes a little bit more specifically on uh, the creation of humans. And so for this one, um, if the video will allow us and not crap out the computer again, um, we're going to try this. And Allison and I had just a little conversation about uh, about what this looks like in human relationships. And before we just before we we, uh, watch that, I'll just read the passage. We can share it together. This is Genesis 2 uh, verses, uh, sorry, verse 18. So let's read this together. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Let's watch. So one of the things uh, as we looked at this verse in Genesis 2.18 uh, was I, I felt that um, I, I wanted to hear uh, uh, Allison's perspective, uh, particularly as uh, as a female, uh, because I think that there's something unique happening here. And uh, and so I wanted to just ask you, Allison, what uh, what is your understanding of this uh, this passage about uh, that it is not good for man to be alone, and uh, that God brings a helper. 
Yeah, I love this verse, but I do think that um, that there's it's one that needs some extra help because there's often some things that are missed. And uh, first of all, I think that um, it's not good that the man should be alone. Uh, the word there is actually kind of a Hebrew play on words. So it's uh, Adam, which is related to the Hebrew word Adama for ground. So it's kind of like saying a groundling or like an earthling. And the reason I point to that is just to say that I think there's something about... Um, it's less about that it was a man that was created and that we needed than a woman. And I think it's more to say that God created a, a human in this in, intimate and beautiful way. But God's saying it's not actually good for there to only be one human. We need to make another. Um, and then I think in terms of the uh, I'll make a helper as his partner, again, often that feels like uh, it's kind of a weak translation. And because the word for helper, Azer in the Hebrew, is almost exclusively only ever used of God and it's particularly describing God's like mighty kind of like a military rescue help in the most dire circumstances is that kind of help and what does it mean that we are created to be that kind of help to one another it's so tricky when the when the translation um it just is not adequate enough and sometimes there's just not words to describe uh, the uh, the wonder and, and awesomeness of, of a word like easer, like helper um, it just doesn't quite cut it because that's such a powerful picture, right? that yeah. we're created to be those mighty rescuers to one another and then the second word um, that gets translated as partner is sort of this appropriate like fit that there's sort of this like um, unity, but also distinctiveness between, but that there's a very much a like going together, that there's a needing of one another, there's an equal and adequate fit. Um, and again, that's just such a beautiful picture of what's created and intended there. And uh, I love the bit at the very beginning. Uh, it's the first time that God says, it is not good. Mm-hmm. It is not good. It is not good to be isolated. It is not good to not be in community mm-hmm. with one another. That in our uh, diversity, uh, that God God shows up in that way. Absolutely. That there's... There's something, I I mean, it it is really profound. God made everything, everything is good, but to say that for there to be only one is not good, and that there's this profound call for us to be that for one another, to be those rescuers. And then I also think it points back to, um, in Genesis 1, we have this story in that creation narrative about um, God creating in his own image, male and female, he created them. And I think that there's something profound about both male and female that actually reflect the image of God and that if we only have one we're actually only seeing part it's like getting half of the view or something of God that together male and female present a more full uh, representation of a reminder reflection of who God is that's good Genesis 1 and 2 we're going to move from Genesis 1 and 2 to Genesis 3, where things change. And uh, let's read two of these highlights we came up with, which are back-to-back, so we'll read them together. Genesis 2, 25-3-1. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So, Justin, they say that when you're nervous about public speaking, if you picture your audience naked, that helps. Have you? (laughs) Do you do that? I don't do that. I've never been nervous. Oh, oh, wow. That is... is, 
Way to set a tone of honesty. <laughs> That's, yeah. I, so, I, was, I was in Christmas pageants ever since I was like two years old, so, you know, it's... Well, anyway, back to the nakedness theme. Um, let's keep on, on track here. Um, I, I know I wouldn't think of this, these fine, beautiful people as, as naked. Um, they're beautiful and fully clothed in my mind. Um, but this nakedness thing runs deep with us, right? I'm going to mostly look at you now. <laughs> of the awkwardness of eye contact after that. Um, it's one of these nightmares we have. I don't, know, I don't know if you have any of those kind of classic nightmares. Of uh, I have had a nightmare of preaching naked, and we don't need to get into that. <laughs> but more commonly, I'll have a nightmare about writing an exam, and I, I, I'm sitting at the desk, and I haven't studied the right material, or I haven't studied at all. And like both of those nightmares, those fears, tap into our anxiety around being exposed, around being vulnerable. All of us know what it's like to feel shame. And it's incredibly significant that the first, um, what would you call shame? The first emotion, the first reaction to uh, a separation from God that is coming in Genesis 3. Don't steal my thunder. No, I'm not going to. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I'm going to talk a little bit about the consequences of the first verse of Genesis 3. So, um, so this idea of shame is central to our issues that we have with God. And we all of us have that feeling, I think, this feeling we don't measure up, that there's something wrong and deficient in us that needs to be hidden. And these, this happens in little things, right? Like when my daughter Lily went to Ross uh, on, was Halloween Wednesday? On Wednesday. Thursday. Thursday, um, she wore a costume, and she's in grade nine, so she wasn't sure how many other people would be in costume, and she was a little nervous, uh, because if she was the only one, and we assured her she wouldn't be, um, so that, that's kind of a shame issue, right? Um, in the same way, I, I've actually heard that because we're in the gym for these ten weeks, or whatever it is, uh, and you have to come in in front of everybody if you're late, there's like a shame factor <laughs> where some people end up in the community room. Um, and we're funny that way, aren't we? Of course, there's, there's bigger things as well. When we've experienced a public failure, um, when we mess up an important presentation, say, or when some moral failing of ours comes out in the open. The dictionary defines shame as the painful emotion caused by a consciousness of guilt or shortcoming or impropriety. It's the condition of humiliating disgrace or disrepute. And we hate it. We run from it. We can't imagine being naked and unashamed. Maybe not even if we're married. This is the world we live in. But once again, we need to start with the good news. The good news of Genesis 1 and 2. This is the final verse, after all, of that section. And it makes clear that shame was not a part of the original creation. So think about this. You were made for a world without shame. You were made to live as someone with nothing to hide, with no need to ever feel embarrassed or inadequate. But then think about it some more. We weren't just made to be unashamed at a horizontal level. We were also made to be unashamed in our relationship with God. And that's most central to who we are, how we feel, how we live. But then in the next verse, the serpent shows up and asks a question that takes 
that natural harmony and ease that we see Adam and Eve enjoying at the end of chapter 2 in a different direction. The serpent asked, did God really say that? And so shame enters the world as we turn away from God and as we choose to separate from it. It always starts small. I found myself asking this week, did Lily was the only one of our kids who went trick-or-treating this year, and I found myself asking, did Lily really say I couldn't have any of her Halloween candy? <laughs> and, then, and then the wheels were turning, and I thought to myself, even if she did say that, which she did, I'm sure she wouldn't mind if I had just one Kit Kat, or maybe two, because she had lots of Kit Kats. Like, if you went trick-or-treating, you know, it's Twixes and Kit Kats and Coffee Crisps. You have an abundance. And Crispy Crunches, they're a little more rare. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, those are precious. Um, and, and so then I thought, well, maybe just one Crispy Crunch. Um, okay, I'm joking, but this is how it goes, isn't it? It starts small, and we justify these little steps that we take into moral wrongdoing, into separation from God. And the devil whispers his lies to us. So let me suggest two things coming out of this. First of all, we need to be in God's word every day, or we will wander from God into the darkness. And we won't even notice that it's happening. In James 1, it says, anyone who listens to God's word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and immediately after looking at himself goes away and forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. We're made in the image of God and we find our true selves in scripture as the Holy Spirit applies God's word to our hearts and our lives. And so in an important way, what we do every week by gathering around scripture We're gathering around God's word. We're not gathering around community. We're not gathering because of a building, because of good works we want to do. We, it's a reality check for us. It's like looking in the mirror at who we really are. And then starting Monday, all too often we wander away from that truth. So the second thing is that we need to speak those, those words of life to one another. So if, I hope you have a daily devotion, whether it's in the morning, sometime in the day, in the evening, Pick a time that works for you. But those words that we read from the Bible are not just for us. They're to be shared with other people. How often do you find that you just spend time with someone and you, you talk and talk and talk? But when you share God's word with someone, you truly encourage them. And so we need to be involved with community so that we're not alone. Justin was already talking about that. And maybe I'll stop right there. Mm. No, one more question. For all of you, how can we grow in our commitment to be vulnerable with each other? So this issue of shame for all of us, I think, is what drives us apart. How can we do that at court right? What is there a means that you and your creativity, your giftedness, your vision could dream up of us to do of ways that we could do that better? Is there something that you could take a step towards, take a risky step to being close to people and not letting your shame and your anxiety or just your complacency keep us apart. So, All right. So Genesis 3, the story continues, verses, verse 9 and 10. Let's read it together. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. 
So the woman and man, they're, they're deceived by the, serpent, by the serpent and they eat of the fruit and they are immediately filled with this sense of shame that we've just been talking about. God calls out. He says, where are you? As if he doesn't know. Um, and the response is so interesting. Is this, this like knee-jerk response is, I was afraid, so I hid. I was afraid. I, I mean, I, I identify with that at just a, at a guttural level. I don't know about you. But I'm, I'm heartened as I read this because I see a God that pursues. I see a God that calls out to us even when we have messed up, even when we have sinned against God, against others, God reaches out. But even though our, even then our intrinsic human response seems to be fear and to hide. Even as God pursues us in love, the fear of punishment, the fear of being found out, the fear of rejection, these fears can override absolutely everything. It's just, it's powerful. And so from this, we can understand that it is God's nature to preemptively pursue us. And it's our nature to run and hide. And so to deal with this, we need an entirely new nature. This is the kind of thing that we cannot solve just by pure uh, willpower. It's something deeper. We need something that is beyond our own merits, our own goodness. Something that only God can do. So there's this moment in the narrative where our consequences um, reveal themselves, where, where you see the, the ultimate fate of humanity, that our entire nature has become corrupted. But then right here on page three of the Bible, we are given this incredible glimpse of hope. And I want to read this verse from Genesis three fifteen together. And I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right here, this promise of what is to come. The promise of a descendant who would crush the head of the serpent. Allison described this as something, it's kind of a theological term called the, the protoevangelium, the first sign of the gospel, the first picture, the first proclamation of good news coming out of tragedy and devastation. And Jesus, without jumping ahead too, too far, but we're going to a little bit, the story is uh, so intertwined. Je- Jesus is the sinless offspring of Eve who would be wounded by the serpent, by evil, by Satan. But then in the end, Jesus would strike the head. He would offer the death blow at the cross and the empty grave. We see the death of death itself and the beginning of new life, a reversal of the curse, an unraveling of the events in the garden. But right now we live in this weird tension um, where we still struggle with sin. We still wrestle with it on a daily basis. We struggle with hurting one another and harming our connection and intimacy with God. But in this post-resurrection reality, we know that the end is in sight. We know that there, there can be and there will be total and utter victory over sin. But we are still in the battle. We described this last week in our talkback session as this already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. That through Jesus, we experience this renewal of God's reign and rule. Um, It's a picture of what happens happened in Genesis 1 and 2. However, we are not yet in the place of being ex- experiencing the fullness of the new creation. So it's this tension that we have. 
Last week, Allison kind of took this approach, which was wonderful, of exploring how we can be change agents in that, that how we can be um, people that partner with God in reversing the curse, that we can be people that are partnering God with ushering in Jesus' kingdom. And I love how she tackled that. So I want to kind of take a, a different angle on it, because that is a very active uh, way of, of um, being a part of the, the renewal of, of the new creation. However, there is a passive piece of it as well. When I look at so much of Genesis 1 and 3, I see just pure grace. I see this, the, the grace that God didn't have to create this beautiful, wonderful world, but he did. That, that we are not only called to participate, but we are called to simply receive. That even in the effects of the fall, even with them being toil and striving, because of what God has done through Christ Jesus, we don't have to strive. We don't have to toil to receive God's grace, God's love. We can stop and sit. It goes back to the Sabbath idea. We can rest in the finished work of Jesus because the war is over. There are still battles to be fought, but we see the end goal. We can sit under the finished work of Jesus. And I think that's really where our last reading comes from, which is the final verse of Genesis 3, um, which is a terrible judgment, but is also an opening that leads us to God again through Jesus Christ, the full gospel, which the, Justin referred to that first glimpse of the gospel. So let's read Genesis 3:24 together. After, After he, he drove, drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flashing sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So some of you may be familiar with um, the verse that says the wages of sin are death and wages there means consequences. And so even as we want to start with the image of God, the beauty of creation, um, the reality is that we are marred by our sin, and we talked about that over the last two weeks, this idea of original sin, but how that's also liberating. And, and so there is no way back to paradise. There is no way to escape death. Um, nobody can get to heaven, and there's this sword that stands in the way. Nobody can get back and be at home with God unless they go under the sword. The justice of God and his holiness is not something we're ever going to downplay here at Courtright. Um, and that is something that's hard for people to hear in our culture. But the good news, and this leads us directly to the table, I think, is that even though none of us could have satisfied uh, what needed to be paid, the cost because cheap grace is worthless grace, right? And we have a gospel that presents to us the costliest grace of all. And that through that, the cost paid by God of his love for us uh, leads us to hope. That sword represents the cross of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was sent by God. That this what Justin talked about, that God calls out to us and searches for us, reaches its culmination when he sends his son to die for us. Amen. And so we remember, you might wonder, I don't know if you do, but you might wonder why it is that when we 
celebrate communion, that we talk about proclaiming the death of Christ. Why wouldn't we proclaim the resurrection? Why wouldn't we proclaim the hope that we have in Christ first? Well, we proclaim the death of Christ because it's only by his sacrifice that we are able to enter back into the presence of God, to be at home with God the way we were created to be. And when we gather around this table, we hear the invitation of Jesus all over again. We're reminded of his amazing grace, the relationship he wants to have with us, that he was holy and without sin in a way that we can never be, and yet he entered into our darkness to bring his light. He went to the cross so that we could come home to God our Father. And as we approach this table... I hope that you hear the words that Jesus wants to speak to you, not not just in your head, in your heart, but, but in the deepest part of your soul. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. He says the shame you may feel, the regret you have, every disappointment, everything that is broken in your life, as you gather, as we gather around Christ, who is at the core of our faith, at the middle of this fellowship, It will all be made new. So creation leads to the new creation. And we meet Jesus as we share this meal together. This meal doesn't belong to the church, but only to Jesus. It's for those of us who love him and want to love him more. He is the one who invites you to share in this meal. It's not me. And so I hope that whether you're here for the first time today, maybe you haven't been out for a worship service in years, or you've been here all the time, every Sunday, whether you're full of confidence with your faith in Christ or whether you have these doubts that weigh you down, that you will come. Because none of us have earned a place at this table. We proclaim the mystery of our faith and we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Let us pray. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. We thank you for showing us your love by sending your Son, who gave his life for us at the cross, whom you raised from the dead and who is with us always. He has taken away all that separates us from you and has made us friends with you and with one another. We thank you that he has brought us to this table to encourage us by his love. Would you send your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts of bread and wine that we may receive the presence of Christ this morning and be his faithful followers showing your love for the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that